Well, the subject as advertised is the lost tomb of Jesus. Tonight what we want to do is put all of the evidence that there is regarding it into the balance, and therefore we're talking about weighing the evidence. Not only weighing the evidence, but ultimately we want to dispute the conclusions that have been drawn by the producers of this particular documentary film. Now it's pretty much goes without saying in Northern Ireland. We know a lot about the tragic story of the Titanic. Uh, the ship that was the most famous to come out of the Belfast shipyard was supposed to be impregnable, unsinkable, nothing could possibly, they were told back then, punch any holes in this particular impressive vessel. Its very name was chosen to convey back then a sense of overwhelming size and strength, the Titanic. During the two years that it took to complete the Titanic's home, the press would have been throwing out regular reports enthusing about the magnificence of this particular ship. The Titanic was virtually a legend before it had even been launched, and it was to many, many people the ship of dreams. However, as well we know now, on the evening of April the 15th, 1912, this supposedly leak-proof Titanic, rammed into an iceberg and sank like a giant stone. It slipped down to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean with a colossal loss of human life. 1,522 people perished on that particular occasion. So much for all of the much vaunted unsinkable boat. Human pride hasn't really advanced any any great uh, distance. Self-confidence hasn't come on by any leaps and bounds in terms of getting itself regulated between when the Titanic went down and where we are today. Now, why do I mention the Titanic at all? Simply because in one of the most interesting ironies in recent memory, James Cameron, the movie director who made the enormously successful film, The Titanic, has produced yet another documentary, and this documentary is The Lost Tomb of Jesus. This one is no monumental masterpiece, rather it's full of leaks and gaping holes, propped up by speculations and riddled with suppositions. Storyline in the lost tomb of Jesus is basically this. Along with Simcam, Jacob Veaching, uh, Cameron has produced a Discovery Channel special that aired on March the 4th, 2007. It was pretty much a bit of a titanic effort to watch it from beginning to end, I'm told, because it lasted about three hours. The lost tomb of Jesus poses the question... Has the tomb of Jesus Christ been found? More importantly, has the box in which his earthly remains stayed now been discovered? And the documentary proceeds to claim that yes, it has. It's a staggering claim, and if it were true, then it would be very scary as well. Since the 1970s, Hundreds of tombs, thousands of osseries, those are limestone bone boxes, have been discovered in the Jerusalem area. These osseries served as coffins back in the first century in Jerusalem. 
One of these tunes, first discovered in the year 1918 in the Talpiot district in modern Jerusalem, is the subject of James Cameron's film. It was found by accident. A construction crew was out there in Jerusalem. They were clearing this particular section so that they could build upon it. And as they bulldozed this particular area, they discovered a door leading to what they readily recognized was an ancient tomb. According to those who entered the tomb back in 1918, there were ten stone ossuaries, or as we have said, bone boxes, just like those that are displayed on screen. One of the ten is now missing. Six of the ossuaries they discovered had names carved on them, and those names would have been identifying the people who would have been placed in those tombs so many years ago. Now, based on the inscriptions found on these stone ossuaries, a case has been constructed by James Cameron and others that the 2,000-year-old tomb of the ten ossuaries belonged to the family, no less, of Jesus of Nazareth. He alleges not only has Jesus' tomb or his bone box been found, but also his DNA plus further bone boxes in this same tomb belonging to his mother, to his brothers possibly, to his wife, they say, and to his child, Jude, or Judas, as well. Part of the advertising blurb on the Discovery Channel website reads, The film also documents DNA extraction from human residue found in two of the osseries and reveals new evidence that throws light on Jesus' relationship with Mary Magdalene. The documentary includes dramatic recreations based on the latest historical evidence illustrating accurate images of Jesus of Nazareth, his family, his followers, his ministry, his crucifixion, and his entombment. Part archaeological adventure, part biblical history, part forensic science, oh yes, part theological controversy, this is a story, they claim, that will be carried around the world. And it has been. When that film was first shown, it attracted four million viewers. But in addition to the film, you always have spin-offs from any film that comes out that threatens to be a big hitter. We have now been regaled by a book by Simpton Charles Pellegrinum. It's entitled The Jesus Family Tomb. The discovery, the investigation, and the evidence that could change history. That book has been published by HarperCollins, and in its first week or so, it reached sixth place in the bestsellers list at that time. It should be noted that in this particular film, it's not the first documentary that has been made about the discovery of this particular Talpiot tomb. We have already said that these bone boxes were found way back in 1980. So there's been plenty of time between now and then to get a lot of research into the material and to produce documentary after documentary. Back in 1996, a film was made by the BBC suggesting, again, this is the family tomb of Jesus. Now that documentary has been thoroughly discredited. When you consider the fact that these bone boxes have been in the cairn 
of the Israeli archaeological authority for the past 27 years since 1918 without really generating a lot of excitement, a large question mark looms. Think of it, they've been sitting on shelves for 27 years. I wonder if James Cameron's conclusions are so accurate, so groundbreaking. Why did some of these Orthodox Jews in Israel not latch on to what they had already in their possession? It was a classic opportunity for them to make real mileage. Why didn't the Orthodox Jews say, we're going to put an end? once and for all and forever, to that whole messianic movement. We're going to bring down these Jews that are standing for Jesus. We've got the boxes, we've got the proof that this Jesus is the Messiah belief, is a total fraud. It's over, people. Get back to the synagogues. Why didn't they do it? It makes no sense that the Jews would sit on such explosive material for almost three decades. It certainly causes you to wonder why today there is a sudden explosion of interest in these limestone boxes. We do, of course, live in the Da Vinci Code era, when ridiculous claims against the book of God and the person of Jesus Christ made by Dan Brown transformed him just a couple of years ago from a limp-along author to a best-selling blockbuster writer. He attracted worldwide acclaim. It revolutionized, of course, his bank balance. Millions poured in. It's just more than possible that James Cameron was encouraged by the success he saw Dan Brown achieve. He recognized there's a religious community out there pretty uptight. And you can get them stirred up. And you can also get them and others to part with well-earned cash. The lost tomb of Jesus goes down a similar line to the Da Vinci Code, spewing out the same old unsupported claims against the Bible, against the Messiah. So no doubt to James Cameron, it seemed like a rather opportune Moments strike while the iron's hot and all of that at a time when these films on religious themes were very popular. Well, how could you ever think of a more sensational headline than the bone box containing the remains of Jesus of Nazareth, the traces of his DNA plus the remains of his wife Mary Magdalene and his son Judah. They have been found in Jerusalem. Come along, we're going to show you the evidence. What could be more dramatic than that? If the claims made in this movie are true, what impact should it have upon us? Famous American talk show host Ted Koppel interviewed a number of religious scholars and academics after the showing of this Discovery Channel documentary. A Roman Catholic priest was present on the panel that day. They were all asked the question... What if Jesus' bones are in the box? Now, they don't actually claim that his bones are there, just traces of where the bones would have been at some time. But what if Jesus' bones were in the box? They were asked, the priest answered, it wouldn't affect my faith. My faith would go on. Really? If they were to find the bones of Jesus, should it not really affect our faith, 
What exactly is his faith in? No resurrection. You have nothing to trust in. You have no one to love. No one to serve. Your faith is over. It's out. Speaking on the subject, burying the Jesus family tomb controversy, Louis Lepides used an excellent illustration. Fifteen years after Hurricane Andrew struck southern Florida in August of 1992, an elderly Florida woman finally got electricity restored to her home. Now for 15 years this lady had no electricity, no heat, no air conditioning, without power for that immersion heater of hers. She took cold showers every morning. We'd love that. She ran extension leads to her neighbor's house to power a small fridge in her stove and her oven as well. Eventually, she received a settlement from the government because of the losses she had sustained through Hurricane Andrew. But the money ran out before the contractor could finish the work. Left her home without electricity for an even longer period than expected. Miami-Dade County Mayor Carlos Alvarez became involved. And he made sure the power was restored to this lady's house. Her 15 years without electricity was now at an end. If that is Jesus' bone box. Then that means our Lord was never raised from the dead. Do you know what that does? That immediately, in one stroke, turns off the power of New Testament faith. It changes my life dramatically. I may as well teach exclusively out of the Old Testament. Let's turn to Genesis through to Malachi, but let's never go to Matthew through to Revelation. That is forbidden territory. We can't go there. I might as well teach as the Jews do. Ethical monotheism. Convert all the Gentiles and all of you in London Dirty Free Presbyterian Church over to Judaism and convene our services on a Saturday. We would cease to exist. As a Christian church. This is how serious it is. Whoever says like that priest. That their faith would go on. Even if the bones of Jesus were in that box. Cannot possibly understand. What Bible Christianity is all about. They have not learned the truth. That the New Testament is built upon the veracity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the resurrection of Christ our Saviour is not a nice add-on, optional extra to the Christian religion. Another hope-coat-hanger for our faith. A clever hypothesis that someone has dreamed up that has caught a lot of people's imaginations. It's the foundation stone. It's the capstone of our faith. And without it, the whole building of New Testament theology is a ruin. If what the promoters of this project say is true, if the bones of Jesus, traces of his remains, even DNA, or that family tomb of his have been discovered, the implications are monumental and turns our faith completely on its head. Jesus' bones are in the box and we're living with a power outage. We have no Electricity. The fact that he had an ushery, according to James Cameron, contradicts the major tenant of the New Testament faith that Jesus rose from the dead, didn't seem, corruption in his body, ascended to heaven, 
doesn't just cause my faith to blink, it sends it into oblivion. Quite frankly, if the claims made in this movie are true, then you should turn your back on Christianity, because it's been proven a lie. I stand where the Apostle Paul stood when he presented the resurrection of Christ as the central arch, or the capstone indeed, of our faith. 1 Corinthians 15, 14 and 15. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be the dead rise not. Let's think in a little more detail about some of the architects behind this production. Dr. Frank Tabor, biblical scholar, he's heavily involved. Widely acknowledged to be the theological, biblical, archaeological brains behind the project. Now his theology in part runs like this. First of all, he believes in the stolen body theory that the disciples came in under cover of darkness and took away the body of Jesus out of the tomb. In other words, no resurrection ever took place. Not only does Dr. Tabor deny the resurrection of Jesus, he also denies the virgin birth. His belief is that a Roman soldier fathered Jesus, that our Lord Jesus Christ is actually Yeshu ben Pantherum. Pantherum was a Roman soldier, somehow Mary, who lived in an orthodox Jewish holy home, slipped out at sexual relations with a Roman soldier, and Jesus was the offspring of that immoral relationship. That's what this theologian believes and teaches. There is more. Dr. Frank Taborn also believes there are two Christianities. There's the Christianity of Paul, where Jesus is deified, made into the Son of God. And there's the Christianity of James, where he's just a man. Now already we're right into the territory of the Da Vinci Code. Tabor has written a book called The Jesus Dynasty. The hidden history of Jesus' royal family and the birth of Christianity. And he argues that all our Lord was trying to do when he was here upon the earth was just set up a political kingdom. And over that kingdom was brothers plus the twelve disciples. They were rule. As you would expect, Dr. Frank Tabor is not identified in this documentary as being a rank heretic. That's exactly what he is. Rather, he's introduced as a biblical scholar who's going to tell you all you need to know and set you right where you need to be put right as to what the Bible really teaches. Simca Jabovici is an Israeli filmmaker from Toronto. He again is coming into the league of being a biblical scholar. That's how he views himself. He parrots all of the erroneous lines that Dr. Tabor and others have taught him. He once directed a film called The Exodus Decoded. It was shown on the History Channel as well. He tried to prove the exodus that he failed. Didn't seem to be too disappointed at failing in proving the exodus. And so he goes on now and tries to disprove other parts of the Bible. And then there's the man I've mentioned quite a bit already, James Cameron, director of the Titanic, director of Terminator film as well, 
It has been pointed out that James Cameron has been floundering in the last couple of years, that his career is on a bit of a nosedive, that he needs to do something to resuscitate his career, and so this is his attempt. What are the major arguments that refute the claims that are set forth here in the lost tomb of Jesus? Well, first of all, one argument comes from the names that appear on the bone boxes themselves. We're talking then about identification. As mentioned, we have nine or ten osseries, bone boxes, and some claim that over a specific period of time from 150 BC before Christ to about 70 years after Christ, Jewish people practiced what is known as a second burial. When a person passed away, rather than putting them into the ground, they would put them in a tomb that was above the ground. Usually only the middle or the wealthy class of people would be able to do this. They placed the body there in that upper tomb, the relatives, they would hang around, not literally outside the tomb of course, but they would wait for a year or so for that body to decompose. Then they would come into the tomb, they'd take the bones of that person that were remaining, they would put them into this box... A limestone bone box, an ushering, and of course folding them up like this was a much more compact arrangement. This was especially useful if someone wanted to be buried in Jerusalem. They're running out of land, burial ground as they are in this city. They'd have been running out of burial ground even more so around Jerusalem. And so they could use these bone boxes to save space. Some also believe that people wanted to be buried in Jerusalem as close to the temple as possible. And so you'll see the graves there arranged in a radius around the temple area. They wanted to be in there. Even Robert Maxwell is there on one of the mounds. Got him up out of the ocean, put him down in a grave overlooking the temple mount in Jerusalem. They'd be in the vicinity, you see, where the last resurrection is going to take place. And it's a case of booking front row seats. We want to be right there. But these bone boxes, found in the lost tomb of Jesus, as they call it, were found in this general area, part of this radius going round the temple, part of that circle. Let's identify some of the names. You'd find in one of the boxes the words in Hebrew, Yeshua bar Yosef. Now that's interesting because it means Jesus, the son of Joseph. More than interesting, that could be quite alarming. Now, again, it has been noted, the inscription here is written like chicken scratch. Looks like graffiti. That raises a question. Why, if this is Jesus, bone box, why would the writing be so illegible for such an important person as Jesus, Yeshua. After all, they had a year to prepare this ossuary. Why would his family, his mother and his brothers and sisters, who went out and preached that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is the anointed and appointed one, why would they write on his boombox in such a haphazard, careless fashion? In fact, the other boomboxes don't look like this one at all in terms of their inscription. Their inscriptions are very meticulous, very careful and neat in their arrangement. This one is not. Also, some claim that a cross stands before the name of Jesus. 
Now, in fairness, on examination, it looks more like an X. Could be a mason's mark, no more than that. We're not sure. But to push the notion that it is a cross would be foolish. Fact is, crosses were not used until the third and fourth centuries, so there would not be a usage of a cross on an oystery box way back in the first century. The name Yeshua was an exceedingly common name back in the first century. Jesus was by no means the only Jewish male in the first century who bore the name. In fact, that name was turned up on 98 other tombs on 21 other ushery boxes. Israeli archaeologists and researchers, including Amos Cloner, said, Since Jesus was such a common name, you cannot possibly build a case around its appearance here. You have to take into account the other appearances of Jesus' name. Another problem arises from the fact that on the bone box itself, the words are Yeshua bar Yosef. Jesus, the son of Joseph. Now think of that name. How do we normally meet up with Christ in the word? How is he introduced? The son of Mary, not the son of Joseph. For a very good reason. Whatever that name does appear in the New Testament, Jesus, the son of Joseph, it is employed by the lips of his adversaries, his enemies, those who don't know him, largely to discredit him. You see, the son of Mary implies virgin birth. The father is not mentioned. The father being, of course, God the Holy Ghost. So Joseph doesn't get a look in. Whenever the Bible is exalting Christ, he's the son of Mary. But merely to refer to him as this bone box does, as the son of Joseph, ignores the reality of the virgin birth. Remember the theologian involved in the project? Didn't like the virgin birth? Denied the virgin birth? Oh, well, isn't this so convenient? It identifies Joseph, not God, as his father. So why would his family then, who believed in the virgin birth, inscribe the very name that his enemies told him, on his boombox. It's nonsensical to say that a family who knew Christ intimately, who were willing to die as they did for the truth of his claims to be God, would engrave such a derogatory name on what was, in effect, his tombstone. Another name on these boxes was Maria. The filmmakers have been quick to tie this into the mother of Jesus. Now, again, there are some quirks here. Miriam is her proper Hebrew name. And those letters displayed on screen are Hebrew letters as they appear on this particular tomb. The lettering in the box is Hebrew, so you would expect to read Miriam, but while Hebrew letters are certainly used, they spell out the Latinized, Romanized form of Miriam, Maria. Why not use her name, Miriam, if you're writing in Hebrew? It is a Jewish tomb, after all. The filmmakers offer absolutely no proof that Jesus' mother was known after Jesus' death by this name of Maria. They just state it, no evidence at all. Just say, oh, that's what they called her. In the light of the oppression of the Jewish people in Judea by the Romans, in the light of how the Jews viewed the Romans launching numerous uprisings against their authority, why would 
any Jewish woman take on a Roman name and have her family put it on her boombox after she died. It just doesn't ring true. There's another name, Mariamne, Imara. Just to confuse things, Amaram is not written in Hebrew, but written in Greek. So they're throwing all kinds of languages and variants about here. The documentary makes a claim that this form of the name is actually Mary Magdalene's name, and that it was a common name. And throughout the presentation, Jacobici keeps saying, early Christians called Mary, Mary Andy. Well, where's the proof of that? He doesn't give any proof. Until finally he says, well, there was a 4th century work known as the Acts of Philip, in which Mary Magdalene is called by the name Mary Anne. Wonderful. That is such a document, those Acts of Philip. High class investigative analysis is being ruled out right here. You've got a 4th century piece of writing. It's the only appearance where Mary's name is referred to as Mary Amni, but on the basis of this, they're prepared to take every single reference in the New Testament scriptures where she's called Mary from Magdala, Mary from Migdal, Mary Magdalene, wipe them all out and say, ah, but she was commonly known as Mary Amni. That a one-off reference in a 4th century document is going to take a higher place and precedence over a 1st century document. That 1st century document, being the Bible, is very poor scholarship indeed. And you know something? This is quite predictable. The 4th century text he calls in here for evidence, the Acts of Philip, is a thoroughly dubious document. In itself, some basic facts about this Acts of Philip. It claims that Jesus sent out a group of followers to spread the message. The followers were Philip Bartholomew, a woman called Mary Amni, who was identified as Philip's sister. Among their accomplishments, here they are preaching the gospel, listen to their success rate. Among their accomplishments, according to the Acts of Philip, was the conversion of a talking leopard. You heard me right. The conversion of a talking goat and the slaying of a dragon. Sounds biblical. Saul of Tarsus kind of conversions there. While some scholars speculate that Mariamni could be Mary Magdalene, the Acts of Philip, this document that they say prop up what they're doing in their documentary, the Acts of Philip never once refers to Mariamni as Mary Magdalene. Therefore, even if the book could give us proper historical datum, the fact is the filmmakers have grossly overstated the evidence. Now they talk continuously about Jesus, his wife and child. Let me come in right there on that one and say there is no historical evidence anywhere that Jesus ever married or had children. The second part of the inscription on the bone box, Mary Amni Imaram, they milk to the nth degree as well. They say that this Amara means master. So therefore we've got Mary the master. They're talking about Da Vinci Code trail again. How Mary Magdalene is taking over from Jesus. Jesus dies. Buried in the tomb. Out of the way. Who takes over? Leads the disciples. It's Mary Magdalene. And they're bringing it in here again. It doesn't actually mean that at all. The master. It's pretty much a shared box here. And the words would be Mary and possibly Martha. Not Mary the master. At all. Now we have Yehuda bar 
Yeshua. And that's the last name we'll mention on any of these boxes. Allegedly, he's the son of Jesus from this alleged marriage to Mary Magdalene. Now, that puts this documentary actually on a collision course with the Da Vinci Code because according to the Da Vinci Code we have Mary Magdalene and Jesus marrying the um, Mary Magdalene flees over to France uh, there's a child that's born out of that relationship called Serum yes a girl but this one's a boy and he's called Judah not really that close to Sarah at all no matter what language you read it in and then there's Yosef's one of the names of Jesus' brothers that's imprinted on another bone box. A question has been asked about DNA evidence. They've had a lot of experts in DNA work with them on the project. They've claimed that the DNA from the bone fragments they were able to gather out of the ossuary, that was entitled Jeshua Bar Joseph, the bone fragments of Jesus then they're claiming. Oh, you know, those bone fragments in their DNA were different to what we find in Mary Magdalene's bone box. And so according to their reasoning, if they're different in DNA, then they're not sister and brother, they're not mother and son, they must be husband and wife. That's how they get to it. It's a gigantic leap. Because two bone boxes don't match, in terms of DNA, they must be husband and wife. What about the other possibilities? Maybe Mary Amni was the wife of Joseph, because we have no wife for him and he's buried in here. Or maybe she was the wife of Matthias, who's also apparently buried in here. That's another name that appears in the Talpiot tomb. Why do we have to connect her with Jesus? It's a very subjective conclusion. Or what about people from different families buried in this one tomb? And that wouldn't have been an unheard of practice back then in Palestine. So there's a real big problem about connecting the occupants of this tomb. Only two connections out of the six people named can be made. Jesus, son of Joseph, Judah, son of Jesus. And there is no DNA evidence that ties them together at all. I could stand up here tonight and say, I am the grandson of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. You could say, well, we can do a DNA profile on that one. You probably look about the age for his grandson, not his great-grandson, so we could nearly come to accept that, but we could do a DNA profile on that one. Well, that'll be easy. All you have to do is go to London, dig Spurgeon up out of his grave. Take some DNA samples of him, compare it to my DNA samples, preferably when I'm alive. Don't kill me to do it. And come up, match or no match. And you'll be coming and telling me, Mr. Brown, you are totally wrong. You're not the grandson of C.H. Spurgeon, the DNA between you and him. Just don't agree. Now, we can't do that. Neither can James Cameron or any of his sidekicks in the film can't do it with a verified member of Jesus' family and say, well, this is the DNA belonging to a member of the family of Jesus and say, when we look at the tomb and in this box, this is truly the biblical Jesus. We need a proven member of Jesus' family here before us as a standard to which we could compare the DNA samples and studies. Because we don't have an identifiable member of his family, Cameron's DNA experts are working in a vacuum, working based on pure, unfounded speculation. How do you prove this is Jesus of Nazareth, 
Simple answer, you don't because you can't. Another basis on which we disagree with what they've said has to do with calculation. I'll not get into this because this is quite a complicated one. They're claiming in the documentary that the probability factor that it is the tomb of Jesus of Nazareth, he has all of these interconnections within the tomb, is off the order of 600 to 1. That's quite small odds. And is it the tomb of Jesus? Indicated yes in red, no in blue. Can you see the blue? Probably not. There's not a lot of it. That's what the film sets out to say. There is this probability that it is the tomb of Jesus, red. There is that probability that it is not the tomb of Jesus, blue. But then that's with their warped and incomplete samples. Statisticians have got on to this one. Put in one factor and the blue begins to rise with the addition of just one factor. They put in another factor and the blue begins to rise so significantly more. Is it the tomb of Jesus? No, says the blue. They put in another variable that the filmmakers have been very keen to leave out. And all of a sudden we've got the total reverse of what the filmmakers are telling us. In fact, it's even more than that because they're talking about 600 to 1, 9, allowing for a lot of different variables. They're talking in the region of 15,000 to 1 against it being the tomb of Jesus. So the statistics are really stacked up against what they're saying in this documentary. If you want further details on the stats, well, see me later. I don't really feel like lecturing in a maths classroom at this minute in time, and I'm sure you think it's bad enough in English we don't want it in formulae. Location is another reason why we reject this tomb as being the tomb of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, remember, was from Galilee. Up north, that's where his family lived. That's where he had the carpenter shop. That's where he worked alongside Joseph. That's where he learned to breathe. That's where he grew in wisdom, stature, fever, and with God and man. He was from Galilee. Simple question. Why in the world, with his family living in Galilee, would they have a burial place in Jerusalem? Over 70 odd miles away. You could visit that tomb really handily, couldn't you? On the back of a donkey. You'd be there in half an hour. They clearly didn't have a family tomb in Jerusalem. At the time that Jesus died, because he had to be buried in a borrowed tomb, a grave that wasn't his own, belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. There was no family tomb in Jerusalem then. The Talpiot tomb obviously belonged to a middle-class family in first-century Jerusalem. One of the clues and indicators is its rather ornate entrance into that tomb. It is just far too ornamental. Have ever been number one, a secret family tomb, it just wasn't that. It was set up for display. It was built to be seen. It was there to be admired. It wasn't stashed away in some remote part of Jerusalem that no one would know about it. So they could safely put the remains of Jesus and his family. This ornamentation on the tomb suggests it may have belonged to a priestly family, since there is similar ornamentation found elsewhere in some of the middle, upper class tombs in and around Jerusalem, where we know the priestly tribes had their osseries. 
Amos Cloner, an archaeologist, has said the previous studies have revealed that only wealthy people were able to afford to have a tomb above ground, to leave the body in the tomb so that it could corrupt, after a year to come back, remove that body and put it inside a limestone ossuary in another tomb. It was a practice engaged in by the wealthy. And Jesus' family was not known to be a wealthy family. There is no proof that his family did possess a tomb in Jerusalem. Another consideration regarding the location of the tomb brings in an historian, a church historian called Eusebius, wrote in the 4th century. He reported that the body of James, the brother of Jesus, was buried alone near the temple mount. Buried alone. James, the brother of Jesus, near the temple mount. That fact alone makes it extremely unlikely that the Talpia tomb, where people were not buried alone, there were ten people in here. At least, maybe eleven. Very unlikely it was the Jesus family tomb. So James, the one person from Jesus' family who we know in historical record was buried in Jerusalem, his name doesn't actually turn up on any of these boxes. It's not there. Now he of all people should have been in the tomb since we know he was the one buried in Jerusalem. Another reason, the most compelling reason why we reject this tomb as being the lost tomb of Jesus is the resurrection. The strongest argument against this bone box being the final resting place of our Lord Jesus upon the earth is the argument of the empty tomb of Jesus. If this is truly what we've been considering tonight, the bone box of Jesus, then you'd have to maintain a certain number of things. One would be this. After Jesus' death, his family secretly purchased tomb space in Jerusalem. They were quite deliberate now in what they were doing. Uh, Jesus is in the grave. They knew about that. He is decaying. He is corrupting. He's in the tomb that was given to him by Joseph of Arimathea. But knowing that he was not going to be raised from the dead, this family of his decide to purchase another tomb where they're going to put the bone box of Jesus in after a year. Now this is precisely what Cameron, Jacobici, are saying that Jesus' family did. And then having bought this tomb, Members of Jesus' family, James, who was still alive, Mary, Joseph, and the rest, they went out and they stole the body of Jesus from under the noses of the Roman guard. And then, knowing that they had stolen the body of Jesus and stashed it away in some unmarked grave to which they were going to revisit after a year and bring the decayed and decomposing corpse out and crush his bones up into one of these ossuaries, put it in another grave, knowing all of this, they went out and they preached the greatest lie that has ever been proclaimed in human history, Jesus of Nazareth, let us tell you, he is risen from the dead. That's what this scenario demands. For a whole year they claim this, and longer. And each of the members of Jesus' family would have died, according to Cameron, with this guilty secret. The Jesus they proclaimed was alive, was actually dead all the time. And they were going to be buried beside him in one of the orcheries. And the lie just kept growing. Like Pinocchio's nose, bigger and bigger 
and bigger. And more and more lives were changed in the name of this lie. You know, the implications of that are huge. No matter about their efforts, what they say, this would be a direct contradiction of the prophecy about Messiah. In Psalm 16.10, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. That's the prophecy that Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost, proclaims to that assembled audience of people who were Jews. Who knew their Old Testament scriptures from all parts of that occupied Roman Empire at that particular time? And in their ears, he quotes the words of Psalm 16 and 10 in Acts 2 and 27 and Acts 2 and the verse 31. You see, the resurrection of Jesus, whom God hath raised up, rubbishes the entire concept of this Calpiot tomb, the lost tomb of Jesus. Go in search of the founder of Buddhism and you'll find him. Dead body in a grave. Go in search of the founder of Islam and you'll find him. A decomposed corpse in a grave. Go in search of the founder of Hinduism and you'll find him. Another decayed corpse. Go in search of the founder of biblical Christianity, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll not find him in any earthly grief. But if you're saved, you'll meet him. And you'll see him face to face. And you'll cry as Job did, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that the latter day he will stand upon the earth. And he talks about how in Job 19, with these eyes, I will see him who was God. James Cameron's new film, The Lost Tomb of Jesus, is trying to delegitimize Christianity. It seems that every time that we come to this season of year when we remember the death of our Lord, vicarious death, his glorious resurrection, that somebody else comes up and tries to undermine the foundations of the Christian faith. The Jesus papers, the Da Vinci Code, now the lost tomb of Jesus. And all of these, all of them, will prove to be false. One reason the Christian faith has survived and flourished for 2,000 years is because there were numerous eyewitnesses to the resurrection who saw with their eyes the risen Lord. And you know what? In this building, there are many people who, though they don't see God with fleshly eyes, they feel the risen Lord, the living Christ, in their hearts. I was listening to Squire Parsons this week, who sang, I don't have to see the tomb in Jerusalem to know that my Saviour lives. I don't have to feel the print in his hands to view that wounded side for one day. He came into my life, and today he's still alive. I know he lives. I know Jesus Christ lives today. He's not lying in the grave. He's alive with power to see. I know Jesus Christ lives today. I think of that little old woman in Florida. Fifteen years, no power. If Christ were not risen, 
The New Testament is powerless. But I'll tell you this, because of this empty tomb, the power is still on. It was the risen Savior who declared in Matthew 28, 18, All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. And it was the Apostle Paul who yearned in Philippians 3 in the verse 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. We need that power today. Power to answer the skeptics like those behind this documentary. Power to proclaim the truth of the gospel of God's grace. Power to live for Jesus Christ. Power to encourage our hearts together. And I trust we have been encouraged as we have listened tonight and examined this particular subject.